when a person leaves or even more tragically passes away, they sometimes leave mementos or possessions that those loved ones who they have left behind hold on to dearly. Certain books that my father has given to me that have a special place in my heart. There's certain pieces of clothing that are dear to me that remind me of my late father. Well, in a similar way, the Lord Jesus, before he left, he says, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to ask my father, and he's going to give you something. It's not a garment. It's not some token. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Quite a tremendous memento for Jesus to leave his people. In fact, he shockingly says later on in this same teaching that consists of really chapters 13 through 17, Jesus says later on in chapter 16 these shocking words, it is better for me to leave so that you may have the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know what the look on the faces of the disciples were at that moment if they were thinking, it's better for me to leave. But that's what Jesus says. He says, it's better for me to leave so that you have the Holy Spirit. Now, there's quite a bit of confusion pertaining to the Holy Spirit. Lots of... uh, Lots of different ideas out there that we need to anchor ourselves closely to the Scriptures. We need to develop our understanding of the Holy Spirit from the mouth of the Holy Spirit as He speaks to us through His Word. Think that's a good idea? I think it is, okay? And so let's, let's establish the reality that the Holy Spirit is Himself God. In fact, uh, this is actually the verse 16 that we read is a wonderfully, beautifully Trinitarian verse. Jesus says, I will ask the Father. So Jesus, he's asking the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. We see all three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, who's sometimes thought of as the faceless member of the Trinity, He is eternally God. We see him from the opening pages of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and what? The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So from the beginning verses of Scripture, we see the Holy Spirit ready to be summoned by what would appear to be the Father to execute bringing life into this world. We see the Holy Spirit. He is often called the Spirit of God. Sometimes he's called the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is often mentioned in the various Trinitarian formulas that we see in the Scripture. For instance, the the familiar one of Matthew chapter 28 verse 19, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And again, if we just step back and think, if the Holy Spirit is not God, it would be blasphemous to to put the Holy Spirit on the same level as the Father and the Son. But we know that the Holy Spirit is God himself. We see the Holy Spirit has the different attributes of God. You know, there's certain characteristics that are given only to God himself, like eternity. You know, we we all have a birthday, right? None of you could stand up in this room and say, I've always existed. And yet the Spirit of God is one who has no beginning and no end. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, he is the eternal spirit. He is the one who is omniscient. That means he has all knowledge, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 
10 and 11. He is the one who is omnipresent. That means he is infinite in relationship to space. He is everywhere, and yet he cannot be contained anywhere. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The spirit is omnipresent. The spirit is also omnipotent. We see him even at the beginning of creation, involved in creation. But as we understand that the Spirit is God, He's part of the Trinity, I think one of the ways in which we often are in air in our thinking, in our believing, and even in our speaking is we tend to depersonalize the Holy Spirit. He's probably the one person within God that we tend to depersonalize more than anybody. And, and I think there's, there's a couple different reasons for that. I think part of it is when we think of the dominant description in the Trinity, we think of the Father. And we can relate to a Father. Many fathers are sitting here in the room, right? And if you're not a Father, you've known a Father. You've had a Father, right? And so we understand the concept of a father. We understand a father having children. We understand a son, right? We understand a son in relationship to the father. But when you mention spirit, I don't know. I've never seen a spirit, right? I know I have a spirit. The Bible tells me I have a spirit. And so we we do tend to depersonalize the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit in a very personal way. In fact, if you want to know a pet peeve of mine, uh, refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. And it might throw an elbow in your side, okay? Because the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. He is a person. He is not a force. He is not an influence. He is a person. He is not the spiritual equivalent to some energy drink that you get hooped up on periodically. He is a divine person, eternally God, but a very real person. How do we know that? Because the the Bible often speaks of the Holy Spirit having an an intellect, a mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, I already mentioned he's described as omniscient, having all knowledge. Also Romans chapter 8 and verse 27 He also has emotion, okay? Emotion. We don't speak of, you know, the chair having emotion. Now, we may say that, boy, man, I think that chair really hurts when you sit on it. But even in doing so, we we have a phrase for that, a literary phrase, what? Personification, right? Right? If we say the sun smiled or the chair hurt, we are making that chair into a person. We are describing it as if it had personal characteristics, but we, we know the chair is not a person. But yet, the, the Word of God says in Ephesians chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is a person whom we can grieve. Now, I understand those who are more theologically astute, you know, will come at me and say, well, you know, does God experience emotions in the same way that we do? Obviously not, you know. God is omniscient. But nonetheless, the Bible uses that language to describe the Holy Spirit of God. He has a will. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, that he distributes gifts as he wants to, as he wills. Forces, influence, don't have a will. They don't have an intellect. They don't have an emotion. The Bible also mentions that he teaches. We see that within this context. He teaches. He testifies, John 15, 26. He leads and directs, according to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Acts 13. He gives guidance. He convicts, we'll see later on in John 16, verse 7 and 8. He speaks. We see that 
many scriptures. He intercedes. He reveals. He can be, according to Acts 5.11, Ananias and Sapphira found this out the hard way, he can be lied to, okay? And he can be blasphemed according to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31. So the Holy Spirit is God, eternally God. The Holy Spirit is a person. And we're going to learn about a lot about the Holy Spirit throughout the rest of this upper room discourse because Jesus spends a lot of time talking about him. But for our purposes this morning, that was all by way of introduction, we are going to ponder three very important truths about the Holy Spirit. First of all, the Holy Spirit is a representative of Christ. Notice what Jesus says here. And again, think the context. This is the upper room. This is the evening before Jesus is going to die on the cross. He tells them in verse 16, and he's also, he's just kind of dropped the bomb in their lap that he's going to be leaving them. He's also dropped the bomb in their lap that one of them will betray him. And one of them will deny him, namely Judas and Peter. And so they're a little bit unnerved. The prospect of him leaving them is not making them feel very good. And it's in this context that he wants to comfort them and assure them he's not going to leave them by themselves. That he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. And so he says in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father. I'm going to pray to the Father. And he's going to give you another helper. Now, some of your translations may say comforter. That's kind of the old King James translation. Um, It's probably better that a lot of the newer translations don't translate it comforter, lest you think the Holy Spirit is a blanket you throw on yourself when you're cold. Um, But the old sense, actually, it's not a bad translation if you think of the older sense in which comforter was used as calm with fortiere, like you think of somebody with fortitude, um, as as strength, so one who brings strength. Uh, some, Some translations just punt on it and transliterate it. They don't translate it. They just say the paraclete, right? Um, not paraclete, paraclete, okay? But it's, it's, it's the Greek word parakletos, which, which simply means one who is called alongside of. If you kind of broke down the word etymologically, just if you just looked at the two words and if you separated those two words and how they originally used, it just means one who is called alongside of. But... When it's used in the ancient world, it's often used in a legal context. One who is, in fact, it's used one other time by the Apostle John in 1 John 2.1. It might ring a bell to you when John writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have, here it is, a paraclete. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. So John uses this elsewhere to speak of Jesus. Jesus as an advocate, Jesus as a paraclete who advocates on behalf of sinners, who stands before the Father and can say, I paid for their sin. I died as a propitious sacrifice on their behalf. You cannot sentence them to hell. Aren't you glad you... If you're a believer this morning, you have Jesus as your advocate, it's good to have legal representation before a holy God, okay? Don't want to go into the courtroom without that, okay? But here, Jesus, and this is beautiful here, he says, another advocate. And what's fascinating here, and you can't really see this in English because usually we use the word another in English uh, we, we don't have two different words for another, okay? Another in English, I may say, can I have another chocolate chip cookie, please? And when I say, can I have another chocolate chip cookie, what I mean by that is another of the same kind. That was delicious, okay? That was warm and melted in my mouth. The chocolate chips were ooey and gooey. Okay, now you want to leave and go get some chocolate chip cookies, 
come back to earth, okay? So I used another in the same sense, another chocolate chip cookie of the same kind. But if, let's say, there was nuts in this chocolate chip cookie, and I discovered there was nuts in this chocolate chip cookie, and I have an allergy to nuts, and I said, can I have another chocolate chip cookie? Like, and what I mean by that is another, what, of a different kind that doesn't have nuts in it, okay? Well, it just so happens in the Greek language in which John recorded what Jesus said here, there's two different words for another in Greek. And one, in fact, this may sound familiar, hetero, it's heteros, okay? That's another of a different kind, okay? And then there's alos, another of the same kind. Well, Jesus uses the word alos here, another of the same kind, to describe this helper, this paraclete, this advocate. So what he's saying here is, I'm going to pray to the Father, and he's going to send you another of the same kind as me to be an advocate. Which, again, demonstrates to us that the Holy Spirit, I mean, Unless the Holy Spirit is God of very God, it would be borderline blasphemous for Jesus to speak of the Holy Spirit in that kind of way. But Jesus here asked for another helper, another representative. But what is fascinating here is that this other representative is not another, I don't think so, is not another representative for us. Because as far as I can tell, that that's not what's dominant within this context, nor is that dominant throughout the rest of the Scripture. We, Jesus is our legal advocate before the Father. But what we do see in this context, in the very context of Jesus saying, I'm going to go away, I'm going to pray to the Father, he's going to send you an advocate, is that this one is an advocate not on behalf of sinners before God, but on behalf of Jesus before sinners. In other words, Jesus, in this context, he's saying, I'm going away, and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be my representative. You don't have to worry. I have a representative who's going to come on my behalf. He's going to represent me before you and be at work in your life. And this is what we see in the rest of the context of of John 14 through 17. For instance... In John 15, 26, it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, which is interesting because in this verse, he's asking the Father to send him. In, in fifteen twenty six, Jesus is sending the Spirit. When the Helper comes, same word here, advocate, paraclete, representative. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Notice what he does. He will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So later on, the same, at the same meal, Jesus says that the helper, the Holy Spirit, he's going to testify on behalf of Jesus. Now, one little correction in your thinking, because I'm speaking of the Holy Spirit as an advocate, as a representative represent advocates in this legal context in the ancient world at this point in time, they actually, you know, when we, normally when we think, you know, I want legal representation, you know, you may go downtown and look for a sign that has several last names on it, you know, and then you may pick your, your representation. You don't have any existing relationship with that lawyer but you're real willing to give him some Benjamins or her some Benjamins so that they will stand in court on your behalf. Well, in the ancient world, it was actually a personal friend that would be your advocate, one who knows your character, one who's been with you, one who went to elementary school with you. 
And so here, Jesus is calling the Holy Spirit an advocate, one who would be his representative, one who is his close companion, who will testify on Jesus' behalf in his bodily absence from his people. We also see this in 16, 13 to 15. Jesus, again, talking about the Holy Spirit, the representative, the advocate, his close companion, his close friend. It says, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So what Jesus is saying here is that he's going to pray to the Father. The Father is going to give a helper, which what I'm contending for is this is one who represents Jesus, a close companion of Jesus, the eternal third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, that he is a representative of Christ here on earth. And his primary function is, is to testify of Christ, to glorify Christ. And this, my friends, this is one of the reasons why he is often thought of as that forgotten member of the Trinity. Because his primary job is to point to the Father and to the Son. That there's a very real sense when Christ is being exalted, even if the Holy Spirit is not mentioned, you know that the Holy Spirit has a smile on his face. Because that's what he does. It's kind of like, think about if you've ever gone to a Major League Baseball game or college football game or NFL game and it's an evening game and what's amazing about evening games is you can go to this baseball game this football game at night and you can see everything crystal clear you can see that main event going on you can watch the athletes and their amazing performances you didn't bring your flashlight Why? Because there's huge lights that sit above the stadium. And you may even have to strain to see where's all that light coming from. But that light is is doing its very function in a kind of hidden way behind the scenes as it shines the spotlight on the grand event so that everybody comes there and sees this athletic performance and can see all that's taking place. And all the while, the lights are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. They're shining on the main event. In a very real sense, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He's the floodlight. He shines on the main event that Jesus died and rose from the dead. And he is the exalted one in glory. So that in a very real sense, if you will, a spirit-filled church is a Christ-exalting church. Because this is the Spirit's primary function. The Spirit promotes the glory of Christ. And so, my friend, if you're sitting here this morning and you have a heart desire for Christ to be exalted in your life, for Christ to be honored in how you conduct yourself in the workplace, for Christ to be honored in the way in which your family operates, for Christ to be honored in the, in the way in which you study as a student, then you know the Holy Spirit of God is at work in your life. He's shining the spotlight of the glory of Christ in your life. If you have a humble ambition for you to more and more image Christ, for you more and more to live like Jesus lived, then you can be confident that the Spirit of God is active in your life. 2 Corinthians 3.16, or is it 3.18? I can't remember. 
It says, we all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of Christ are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from what? This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That verse teaches us that as we gaze upon the glory of Christ, we're increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And all the while working behind the scenes is who? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit, the humble member of the Trinity, wonderfully and gloriously at work in the lives of his people so that Christ would be produced and conformed in their life, so that Christ would be exalted in their life. We see this as well in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. If we were to take each of those characteristics, love, joy, peace, could, could we say that Jesus Those are characteristics of Jesus. Nod your head. And so that when the Spirit is producing these in our lives, he's making us more like Jesus. He's the advocate. He's the one who exalts Christ. He's the representative of Christ upon the earth. He loves to shine the spotlight on Christ. And so sometimes I wonder if if one is always talking about the Holy Spirit but not about Jesus, then is the Spirit really at work? Maybe, I don't know. Because we see this dominant role of the Holy Spirit to exalt Christ. Also think in our own lives, the way we talk. I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as edifies, that it may give grace according to the need, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And then notice the next verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So that the Holy Spirit, he's seeking to produce Christ-exalting, God-glorifying speech from our mouths that when we have unwholesome words proceed from our mouth, we're working not with the Holy Spirit, but against the Holy Spirit, and it's grievous to him. Grievous. And so, friends, this is, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is a representative of Christ to produce Christ exaltation, Christ conformity. This is what he does. Secondly, he is not only a representative of Christ, he is a revealer of truth. Because obviously, I think, I think Jesus beautifully touches on this here because we might ask, how does he do this? How is the Spirit a representative of Christ on the earth? Well, notice verse 17, what it says, that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He is called what here? The Spirit. The Spirit of what? He's not called the Spirit of wildness. He's not called the Spirit of craziness. He's not called the Spirit of personal experience, although, of course, if he's at work, certainly there's going to be personal experiences. He's not the Spirit of drunkenness, the Spirit of intoxication. He is called here the spirit of truth, of truth. 
Within this very context, remember, in 14.6, Jesus speaks of himself as the truth. When he says to his disciples, what? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. Later on, towards the end of this discourse in chapter 17, Jesus is going to be praying for his disciples, and he prays to the Father for his disciples, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is the truth. God's word is the truth. And then, now let's look a little bit more closely at some of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in bringing forth the truth in the inscripturated word, written truth. How so? Notice in 1426, this is the second time in this context Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as this parakletos, this helper. It says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Again, we need to remember the original context. Jesus is in the upper room. Who's he talking to? He's talking to, at this point, the 11 remaining disciples we also know as the apostles. And he tells them that this spirit, this advocate, this paraclete, this representative, the Father will send him in my name and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He's going to take that which I said to you and he's going to cause you to remember it. Why? Now, we often, I think, take this verse and immediately run to apply it to ourselves. The Holy Spirit reminded me of this verse. Now, I do believe he does that, but I think in this context, he's talking to his apostles in the most immediate application, the most immediate truth that's being communicated here is that the Holy Spirit reminds the apostles of Jesus' teaching so that they could what? I mean, did you ever wonder how they remembered what Jesus said? I mean, you can't remember what your wife told you last night about taking the garbage out. And yet, these guys, decades afterwards, are able to write down Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' how about this? The upper room discourse that John himself is writing down that may have been... 60 years after Jesus had died? How could they remember? Now, granted, from a human perspective, it was was much more of a culture in which information was transmitted orally, so it was quite common for students of rabbis to actually memorize the discourses of their rabbis. But nonetheless, the reality of human imperfection, it would take a miracle to remember everything. And yet this is what the Holy Spirit does. He teaches them all things, namely everything that Jesus said, so that they could write it down, and hallelujah, you could open your Bible and read what Jesus said. Because you have the writings of the apostles. This isn't the only time in this context. In 1613, it says, but when he, again, same title, Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. Now, again, is there an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in preserving his people in the truth? Yes. Is that what 1613 is talking about? I don't think so. I think what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit guiding the apostles in the truth so that when they would finally sit down and write the books that they wrote, the letters that they wrote, the final product was truth, truth from God on high. That's why he's called the spirit of truth. And this isn't the only time that we see of all the persons within the Trinity 
the Holy Spirit seems to, in a dominant way, be that member of the Trinity who's involved in guiding the pens of the authors of Scriptures so that the Word of God is the product. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Holy Spirit was involved in this inscripturation process so that the final product, while it was Peter's words, it was the Word of God. While it is John's words, it is the Word of God. Even that famous verse that we often quote, 2 Timothy 3.16, when you understand that it is a spirit, that word pneuma in Greek and also in the Old Testament, ruach in Hebrew, often is the idea of breath or wind. Well, it's no accident when, when Paul describes the Scripture, he says all Scripture is given by what? Theonoustos, God's breath. It's the breathing out of God. Why? Because it is the third person of the Trinity who guided the authors of Scripture so that the final product was the Word of God. But this is also the testimony of various authors of Scripture as they refer to other passages of Scripture. Listen to how Mark describes what Jesus said David himself said, quoting from Psalm 110, this is Mark 12, 36, David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your, en- uh, put your enemies beneath your feet. So Jesus, quoting from Psalm 110, as recorded by Mark, says, David said this in the Holy Spirit. How about Acts chapter 1 and verse 16? Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then there's a citation, I think, of Psalm 69. How about Acts 28, 25? Luke records, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15, 16. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying this, this is the covenant I will make with them. In other words, the author of Hebrews records that the Holy Spirit testified through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 is what he quotes. And I can go on and on. I could bore you to tears with passages that tell us that when the authors of Scripture cite other passages of Scripture, they say that those passages came down from the Holy Spirit of God. That's why Jesus calls him the Spirit of truth. And so, friends, this is hugely significant in a world that elevates personal experience as an authoritative truth. That God has given us objective truth in his written words. He's preserved it for us for thousands of years so that we can go and see who is man, who is God, what is right, what is wrong. How can we be forgiven before a holy God? And he speaks this to us in his word. And And he is a representative of Christ. So wouldn't it... Wouldn't it make sense that the main message of this word of truth that comes from the spirit of truth would be about Jesus? It would be about Jesus, that he would be the grand event that the spotlight of the spirit shines upon in all of its blazing glory from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that speaks of the, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent head to Jesus in, Gen- in Revelation chapter 19 coming back on a white horse and through and through the spotlight is upon Jesus. 
This also is important for us as we seek to live our Christian lives that the Spirit of God, He works through the Word of God because that's His instrument. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 says what? Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord with all thankfulness. And then when we compare that with a verse that Paul wrote from the same jail cell, in Colossians 3.16, it says what? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to one another with all wisdom and psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness. What's the point? He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The result is this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and it's the same result. What's the point? is that if you want the Holy Spirit to be at work in your life as a representative of Christ, to exalt Christ in your life, to make you more like Christ, then you need to use the chiseling instrument of the Holy Spirit, namely the Word of God. He is the Spirit of truth. He's the Spirit of truth. You want to be more like Jesus? Memorize more Scripture. You want to grow to be more like Jesus? Read your Bible more. You want to exalt Christ more in your life? Heed the word of God as it is preached publicly. And you'll know the Spirit is at work in your life. But notice, in a very sobering way, Jesus tells us, Not everybody receives the Spirit. That's what it says in verse 17. Whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Notice what he's saying here. The world cannot receive. This spirit of truth, this helper, this advocate, this representative of Jesus, the world stiff arms. But not only that, notice the language here. It cannot receive him. Cannot? The world lacks the ability to receive him. That's what can speaks of, right? You remember that in elementary school when you asked Mrs. So-and-so, can I go to the restroom? And she said, Matt, I don't know, can you? Right? She wanted me to say, may I go to the restroom? Right? Jesus says the world cannot, cannot receive him. This is the same thing Jesus says to Nicodemus. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. No one can Enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. No one, Jesus says, can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44. Or how about uh, John 15 and verse 3. You, apart from me, you can do nothing. And in that context, you can't bear fruit. All these cannots in Scripture. How about this one? Not only... Does the Apostle John record these for us? But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Friend, if you have no desire for Christ to be exalted in your life, if you have no desire to be more conformed to the image of Christ, to live more like Jesus, then this is evidence that you are still part of the world. You have not yet received the Holy Spirit. If you've not yet come to that point, my friend, you need to humble yourself before God. You need to look at your life, be honest with God, and realize that you do not have the Holy Spirit of God at work in you. 
And when you do that, God is merciful. As you own up to your own sin and rebellion, you come to Jesus and get honest with him and say, Jesus, I don't have a heart desire to be like you. I don't have a heart desire to live for you. I need your forgiveness. And you humbly trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus will forgive you of all your sins and you'll then be put on a path of wanting to be like Jesus in your life, wanting to exalt Jesus. And then guess what? Then you know the Spirit has been at work in your life because that is not normal. Notice what it said. The world cannot receive him. The world doesn't receive the Holy Spirit. The world stiff arms the work of the Holy Spirit. And notice what it says. It cannot see him. And this is not talking about physical sight here. This is the spiritual sight that Jesus spoke of Nicodemus, that no one can see the kingdom uh, kingdom of heaven. We're in 1417 here. Or know him. They don't know of his work. But then he says this encouraging note to his disciples, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. With you and will be in you. This is amazing here. Jesus, I think what he means is that he's with you in the sense that he's with you now that I'm here with you but he will be in you as I go and depart. I'm praying that the Father will send the Spirit and he will indwell and infiltrate your life. And this is all, that this is a kind of transition in redemptive history that we see taking place in verse 18 when Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus tells his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What does Jesus mean? Now, there's a couple different interpretations. This is point three, by the way, that the Holy Spirit is not only a representative of Christ. He's not only a revealer of truth. He's thirdly a resident of the believer. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How is Jesus going to come to them? Is he talking about post-resurrection appearances? Like, remember that time he just kind of appeared in the room? Or 1 Corinthians 15, that he appeared to... Cephas and James and the 500 others? Could be. But I think within this context, he's primarily talking about, again, Jesus is going to be leaving them. Yes, he's going to come back, rise from the dead. That's what he says within this context. Because I live, you also will live. But I think what he means, I'm coming to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we see happen on the day of Pentecost in a, in a kind of grand redemptive historical moment as Jesus has just ascended back into heaven bodily in Acts chapter 1. By the time of Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit of God coming, descending upon the apostles and then ultimately all believers in, 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 in the, the, this, this kind of age since the return of, of Christ back to heaven the Holy Spirit is the primary advocate for Jesus on earth. And he speaks to us through his word. And this amazing promise that he is in you. He was with you, but now he is in you. This promise that we see in verse 16, that he will be with you forever. This promise that we see in verse 18, that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse, verse 20, this promise, in that day you will know that I am in the Father 
and you and me and I and you that there is this union that takes place. And so this, what we commonly call this indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, it's highlighting this unique and intimate relationship that the believer now has with the representative of Christ on the earth, namely the Spirit of truth, the Helper. When we talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer, this is an amazing truth. And, and obviously, I don't, I don't think it's talking about spatial realities like the Holy Spirit is behind the left ventricle or something like that. But it's talking about this, this relationship that we have where the Spirit is at work in our hearts and our immaterial man, this closeness that is available now because Jesus is bodily at the right hand of the Father. And it's no wonder that the New Testament often speaks of the believer as a kind of a what? Temple. Why? Because this is where the presence of God is in the believer's life. The church, 1 Corinthians 3, is called a temple. Because the presence of the Spirit of God is in the midst of the people of God. I'm not much for home improvement. I can change light bulbs. When you think about home improvement, you know, sometimes we think of, you know, maybe tearing out an old kitchen sink and replacing it, or tearing out a bathtub, replacing it with a new bathtub or shower. But this business of the Holy Spirit as a resident and the believer, as he makes home in the believer's life, he's tearing down rooms. But he's rebuilding. And as he's rebuilding, it becomes apparent he's rebuilding a palace, a palace for which the king is to reside, a palace that, again, the Scriptures liken it to a temple, which was God's palace in the Old Testament. It was where God dwelt upon his throne between the cherubim. And wonder of wonders, this is the way in which the scriptures describe the Holy Spirit residing in the life of the believer because he's making your life a kind of palace for God to reside in. So, my friend, are you working with that construction project or are you working against it? My prayer is that you're working with it and not against it. Let's pray.